When we were in the Holy Land a couple different times, we heard the words about David and about how great he was. And we went into the city of David. And it was a spectacular place to be able to go. You've heard of the Star of David. There's much said about David. His kingdom was pretty impressive. This week in the news, there has been word about a Cohen that was found from the era of David. The Bible will talk a lot about this guy, and many of us have heard a lot about him in our Sunday school classes and throughout our life lessons. And if you're a leader of any organization and company, secular or sacred, you probably have heard about the Davids and Goliaths as an illustration will be given to you to try to talk you into being able to overtake that which would seem formidable and maybe that which would annihilate you. So the empire of David is well understood throughout Scripture. Isaiah is writing at a time when David's empire is fading. His empire is fading away. It has been a great big tree, to use the analogy. But now it has been annihilated, been leveled off, and is nothing more than just a stump. It's just a stump. There is not really anything left of the former glory, except the memories and the words and the history books, which record something to tell us a little bit about the time when David lived on the earth and when he reigned. And so Isaiah the prophet is speaking to us, and he wants us to understand that there is hope. The people didn't see much hope. It was a period of darkness in history. Things were not really going that well. Society wasn't really resonating with a lot of hope, and they needed some hope. And so the prophet began to speak. He would speak of something that was incredible. He would speak of a new shoot coming out of the stump of Jesse's house. Jesse was David's father. And he said, there will be a new shoot that will grow up out of what was once great, and it will be greater than the former. It will be magnificent. It will be something beyond our expectation. So he begins to clarify for the understanding of his listener, both then and now, that Jesus Christ is going to be that shoot, that he will be the one who is going to grow into the next great, formidable, incredible government. And so he begins to describe a Christmas government, something that would be much different than the former, something that would be considered to be enormous compared to the first. And so he gives us two great facts in this 11th chapter of Isaiah that really help us in our understanding of what the future would entail. And the hope that is talked about this morning in this service is a hope that is founded in places like this, where Isaiah speaks to us and begins to give a prophetic word that would reach out into our hearts and to his listeners then. He gives these two big facts about Christ that are magnificent. He first is going to talk about the first coming of Christ, and then he is going to point even further into the future to the second coming of Christ. The first coming of Christ, we now look back on, he looked ahead to. 600 years ahead to him, 2,000 years behind us. And we identify what he is going to say to us about Christ. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on in his writing, and he continues on into the future, into something he is able to see with his eyes. His eyes of faith 
unfurl something magnificent and magnanimous that is still ahead. So his listeners were on this side of both of those prophecies, this side of both of those bookends. They're standing back here somewhere looking ahead. They haven't seen it yet. They don't understand it fully. So he's trying to help them. So he talks to them about the birth of Jesus. And then he looks ahead over here to the next advent. That's the first, the next advent of Christ when he will return. You and I live somewhere in here between that first coming and that second coming. So you and I find ourselves in this scripture written about 2,600 years ago. Isn't that incredible? That blows my mind. You and I are right here in the Bible. That's why we can say the Bible is so relevant to us. It's amazing how the Bible finds us out, how the Bible looks for us and it discovers us. And the scripture, as we said the other day, does indeed stand tall. It's powerful. He says, first of all, that he is the coming infant king. Verses 1 through 5 talk about that. He says, Jesus will be humble, yet he will be magnificent. He's going to be very humble in that he's going to be just like this little shoot that grows up. He's just going to be this seemingly incidental little leftover remnant of something that once was great. Have you ever cut a tree down and then you end up looking a year or two later and there's this little whim coming up out of the ground. That's what he's talking about to give the analogy. Here comes this shoot out of the ground. It's not formidable necessarily as you see it now, but it is growing into something that is going to be magnificent. He says it will come from Jesse's house, from the line of David. This is important to us because Matthew in chapter 1, Luke in chapter 4, would give us the earthly lineage of Jesus, and he was coming of the house of Jesse, of the line of David. He is a lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the one who is the formidable one. He is Christ the coming king. This is absolutely powerful what he is saying about him. And Jesus will grow from that small beginning into some formidable government that the world has never seen before. And then he gives unparalleled qualities when he says to us in verse 2 that the spirit of the Lord was upon him. In Isaiah 61, he would talk about the Spirit of the Lord was upon Christ. Then when Jesus would read the Scripture and the scroll in the hearing of those in the synagogue, he would say, today this Scripture is fulfilled. It is the fulfillment of the very Scripture that is read. What does it mean that the Spirit of the Lord is on him? He gives three twins, if you will, three sets of twins, three couplets here that are worth our understanding. Look at verse 2 of your Bible. If you have it open, you'll notice what I'm talking about. It talks about the spirit of wisdom is on him. The spirit of wisdom in verse 2 is on him. This is the Holy Spirit that will guide him through all life. He is on him. He rests on him. And then he's going to have the spirit of understanding. So these first two in this, in this first couplet, we see that it's talking about the power of the mind. Our minds are incredible, incredible in the way they work. It's amazing as we were around our little grandson, two years old. He did not appreciate it when I told him not to drive his cars and trucks on the piano. But we didn't want to scratch up our Yamaha piano. And so he did not like that. He cannot talk very plain yet. He speaks two-year-old ease. And he was speaking in his two-year-old ease. <clears throat> and he put a furrow across his brow and he didn't like it, and he told me he did not like it that I was telling him not to drive his truck there. I did not care. <laughs> I was not moved. His mind is developing. Some of you are incredibly intelligent. 
all of you are very smart people. You're wonderful people. After all, you chose to come to Bethany. So I know that you're very gifted and intelligent people. You're here today. (laughs) But being smart like this, our wisdom and our understanding has limits. And our mind has limits. Because what happens to us when we get older, we begin to forget some things. We go into a room, forget why we're there. We've been down to tie our shoes and forget what we're down there for. All these things start to happen to us, don't they? And then notice the spirit of counsel is on him. No wonder Isaiah would call him wonderful counselor, a compound phrase, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And then it says a spirit of power. Listen to this. He has the ability to make the right discovery in a decision that is very difficult for us to grasp in this life. In the court systems, you're not able to always get a fair hearing. You're not always able to be understood clearly. Motive and intent cannot be discerned. But what this is saying to us, and Isaiah is letting the oppressed people know, even though it's unfair to you now, through the centuries it will be unfair. There is one coming who is going to judge fairly. He has understanding and he has counsel. Isn't it amazing that God has never asked anybody for their advice? He knows everything, and he knows all about you, and he's able to discern what's going on in your life. And then notice, it says he, he not only has that counsel, but he has a power to carry this out. This is absolutely powerful. He doesn't just make the right decision, then, then get mealy mouth about it. He has the right decision, and without knees knocking, creates the decision into actuality. He's not worried about the threatening phone calls he'll get. He's not worried about the little fish shakes that will happen to him. He makes and he carries out the right decisions. And he says, this is the wonderful shoot that is coming in just a little while. And then he talks about him having, look at verse 2, talks about him having the spirit of knowledge on him. When he was 12 years old, Jesus would be in the temple. And the leaders of the temple said, we have never heard someone speak like this. He was 12 years old. The spirit of knowledge was resting on him. And then the fear of the Lord is on him. This is where he has a fellowship with God in this couplet. He has a fellowship with God. He's got knowledge in him, but humility around him. And he's got the fear of the Lord on him that he would say in the garden, take this cup pass from me, let it pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now, his rule is going to be amazing. Look at verse 3 through 5 of this passage. He's going to rule with incredible perception. We know that. He's not going to judge based on outward appearance. Money will not sway him. Titles will not sway him. Your looks will not sway him. Your standard of living will not. The standard of his judgment is going to be the internal righteousness, the motives and the intent. In other words, he's talking about taking off the outer garment, taking off the next layer, and being down into our underclothing. This is what it is talking about, that he brings it down to where he brings the ground level with all of us. And he will judge the earth, which is his prerogative as king. He will do that. And then it says in verse 5, or verse 4 rather, that he will slay the wicked. The day of opportunity for connection with God is over in that moment, and he slays the wicked. But he's coming as a tender shoot, as just a little 
branch as just a crying infant, swaddling clothes bound infant, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Billy Graham said the government of God's kingdom is unique. It's not a democracy where the people govern, but a Christocracy where Christ is the supreme authority. In God's kingdom, Christ is king. He's compassionate, fair, merciful, and just. Is it any wonder that the prophets would have to say something about him because something so great as this had to be declared? Is it any surprise to you that at this time of year we would read stories and hear the story in the Bible about how the angels came to Mary and to Joseph and announced the coming of this one who is so great? Is it amazing to you that the angels would go out and as the sky filled with many angels, they would announce to the shepherds in the field, you need to go see this one who is born, Savior. He is Christ, this Messiah, the Lord, this Lord. You need to go see him. Is it any wonder that the wise men who would calculate all kinds of things out would read in the book of Numbers about the stars and the alignment and understand what the prophetic words were about the prophet and come perhaps on their camels, but perhaps on their Arabian horses from Arabia? Is it any wonder that they came with all their regalia? Because these were guys who anointed people who were designated to be kings. Is it any wonder that we would gather 2,000 years later and want to honor him through the singing of the coming of Emmanuel. This is a shoot out of the dry ground. And this is what the scripture is talking about. But he doesn't stop there about that first advent, does he? He says he is a coming king of peace. The coming king of peace, verses 6 through 16, talk about it. And he gives one of the most unusual, if not bizarre, illustrations to try to help us understand this. Now, he talks about bringing unity into the animal kingdom. This is absolutely amazing to me. He talks about bringing unity into the animal kingdom. Uh, we have a lot of coyotes in this area. We have a lot of foxes in this area. And in the northern part of Pennsylvania, a few years ago, they introduced fishers. Fishers, um, they are a bit ferocious. <laughs> And uh, they will kill chickens. They will kill dogs, medium-sized dogs for sure. Uh, they don't necessarily want to eat it, but they like to kill it. But they brought them into the northern part to kill off the porcupines. They were overpopulated with them. How many of you have a dog? You have a dog, or you ever did have a dog? Once upon a time, way back in the dark, you had a dog. Pam and I have two dogs. They are Australian shepherds. Rebel is a girl. And that is her. She is, a, she is an Aussie. And she is one of the most gentle farm dog type dogs you could ever hope to have. She is nice. She doesn't bark much, except when something really alarms her. She doesn't get too worried about things. She doesn't want to bother anybody. When we take her out, she kind of goes to her places, does whatever, sniffs all of the areas she's supposed to. And then when it's time for her to come back in, she, she comes running. Her hair is flowing. It's regal. She prances across. the. She has good bloodline, and she prances across the yard. And she makes a loop around the yard on the outer perimeter. It's a big yard, and she comes running down to where we let her back in. And uh, she lets us know when she wants to stay outside. 
We have an area where she can stay. She lets us know. She'll just stand outside or if she wants to come into, she lets us know if she comes in or she goes out. She loves the snow. She hates groundhogs. She brings them home. They don't say much by the time she gets them to our house. He's talking about bringing peace to the animal kingdom. The wolf and the lamb, the leopard and the goat, the calf and the lion, the cow and the bear are not at peace, but they will be at peace in the future kingdom. This is unbelievable. A young child, my little grandson, two years old, would be able to lead them around. This is powerful. Verse 7, he would be able to put his hands into the poisonous snake hole, the scripture says, our oldest enemy from Genesis. No longer is our enemy. The curse is lifted. Verse 9, it speaks of the holy mountain. The whole world, as we experience an unusual peace that's going to take place in the great future that is happening. And he says this unity of the animal kingdom is going to take place I don't know about you, but I'm excited about it. They're going to become no longer carnivores, but they're going to become vegetarians. And just think about that. No more steaks. We too will normalize in that moment. And notice, he brings unity among all people. You do not want to go past this. Verse 10 talks about a banner. We've heard the stories about when royalty was in the palace, the flag would be flying high. We understand in Bible times when they talked about the banner, they're talking about sometimes, in this case anyway, where they would go up on a high area and they would put the banner there that would be flying. That meant the people are together. They're going to gather around from all over because there is some important announcement. Now, we might send out text today or fire off a siren, or we might have some kind of a national alert in some other way, but it is some sort of a, an alert for them. And so Isaiah, using the imagery that he would understand the people around him, he said, he will be lifted high. He will be a great banner drawing people from all over the world. Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10 said, obedience of the nations is his. Everybody, every tribe, every tongue, he created you and you will be there, he says. You're going to be there. Verse 10 gives evidence of the appeal of Christ, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Bigger than Isaiah would understand, bigger than his people would understand then. And it points to a time whenever Christ would come and bring unity among the races and the nations. This is going to be a great day. It's going to be the way it ought to be. And he talks about a time when the message of the gospel would go around the entire globe. That's what he is talking about. And when you listen to TBN, and they talk about their satellites beaming all over the world, and when you listen to Daystar Television about their, their satellites and their communications happening all over the world, satellite, the Star Wars of, of the 80s and 90s end up making that possible, didn't it? And end up with the internet and all of the... Uh, the different things that we have to communicate, the translations of Bible. There are only a few languages left that have not yet received the translation of the Scripture. And so what he is talking about here is a magnificent day. And this is why we go into the different towns with the gospel. I'm amazed at how our culture has no clue of what God says, 
has no idea about what he is talking about. This is why I've challenged you, everyone, to join me reading the Gospel of Luke starting December the 1st, chapter 1, December 2nd, chapter 2, December 3rd, chapter 3, right on through the end of Luke. Let's do it together. We can do this, that we might be people of the Word, people who know the Lord. And he says the Word would be all over the world. This is what he says. And then he says he's going to bring unity among the nations, verse 11 through 16. The first gathering in verse 11 and 12, in my understanding, is this. That was when the nation of Israel was brought back into Jerusalem. Now, while we were there, we saw people of different ethnicity backgrounds, typically, but they have a Jewish bit in them, people from Somalia that had migrated there, people from around the world who now live there in different areas of the Holy Land. It was absolutely amazing to me. I wasn't prepared to see it quite as it was like that. But I kept asking our guide to tell me about it, and we chatted back and forth from my seat to his and, and just kept on understanding what was going on. It was amazing to me. But it's the reality of what Isaiah prophesied right here. It's powerful. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about? It's unbelievable. This has happened. And then he's talking about the second advent, that is the next coming of Jesus Christ. And this is powerful because you and I are looking forward to this one. The nations are going to boast a lot of power as the end comes. We know that China has a massive army. They boast other two million person army. We know that. Korea and Iran are talking about their nuclear might. We don't want to find out what it could be, but they're talking about it. Russia speaks of its intentions. Even over the last month, much is said in our times about the Antichrist, the mark of the beast, the false prophet, Satan himself. And people talk to me often about the battle of Armageddon and what it's going to be like and when it's going to take place. Adrian Rogers in one of his writings said this, when Jesus Christ comes in his power and great glory, the battle of Armageddon, how will it be won? Not with guns, not with weapons, but by the sword that comes out of his mouth. The one who spoke the armies into existence will speak them into oblivion. Then he says, never be at war with God. A preacher once said, your arms are too short to box God. Quit trying to smack around on God. And let me take a digression. Some of you are battling in some area of your life right now. And you're trying to make the scripture say what you want it to say. You might be trying to justify some sort of a fractured relationship. You might be trying to justify some sort of business dealing, but your conscience is not at ease about it. It's because the Holy Spirit is lifting up a thought to you that you need to consider. So don't go quickly. Don't rush ahead. Listen to what God says. Don't box with God. Then in verse 4, it says he's going to have his day of wrath. Now in Psalm chapter 2, there's one of the most interesting passages because Psalm 2 puts it this way in verses 4 and 5. God is sick of being mocked. And he laughs and brings down wrath. He's sick of being mocked. Right now, people look at God and they say, nah, I don't like one of the signs of the latter day is going to be this, a falling away, a falling away into a lukewarmness, into what the church age would be, the church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. It's one of the last signs of the time, a falling away of the very committed believers. That's eh, not so bad. Well, this is lukewarm, indifferent, no spiritual fervor. And that falling away is going to happen before Christ will return. 
And that's what he is talking about right here. In Psalm 110 and 5, it says Jesus will crush world powers and kings that provoke war. He's going to do it. And Revelation 19 says it this way. Jesus is the conquering warrior beyond anything we've ever seen. Isaiah said in chapter 9 and verse 7, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Don Wurtzen, songwriter, and you've, read, uh, you've uh, sung some of his songs, he says this, these verses assure me that someday everything's going to be set right. The books will be balanced. And the enemies of God will be defeated once and for all. I want to remind you, this world is not our home. You and I are just passing through. Jesus prayed, not my kingdom, but your kingdom come and your will be done. If you've gone to church for a number of years, you've sung a lot of songs. Probably you've sung songs by writers you've never heard of. Never really read much about. But all of those songs had to have a beginning, right? Somebody somewhere had to write that song. All the songs we sang today, some new, some old, some rearranged, all of them have some sort of an origin, some day of their beginning. And the significance of that is very interesting. Because all of them are birthed out of a story, no doubt. Isaac Watts was a young man, and he was a great writer, even as a young guy. And he said to his dad, who was a deacon at the church, he said, I've written, I've written some songs, Dad, we really ought to sing them. And his dad was like, irritated, didn't need anything new, all the old was working well. And he said, if your songs are so great, why don't you go get one? And so he did. And he brought it to his dad. His dad took his song and took it to the church. And next Sunday they sang Isaac's song. And for 222 straight weeks, he wrote songs that his church sang. That, ladies and gentlemen, is an unusual gift. Unusual gift. And then he put pen to paper and he wrote a song we sing every year. And in the Northeast, at candlelight services, for sure, we sing it. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That is a carol written as a millennial carol about the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. We sing it celebrating the first coming of Christ. He wrote it really as a second coming of Christ. And it's a millennial song that fits both. But it's talking about the reign of Christ that is coming just ahead. You know what? He came over here and there is not a thing you and I can do about it. He's coming over here and there's nothing you and I can do about that. But there is something we can do and that is we can be prepared for when he does return. And I ask you, have you made Jesus Christ the Savior and the Lord of your life? He says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open their heart, I'll come into their life and he'll forgive every sin, any sin, all sin. In our Advent reading out of Psalm earlier, it said, forgive the sins of my youth. In other words, forgive all those sins of my past, those thoughtless, immature, stupid, ignorant, whatever's I've done, and cleanse me and make me ready. Let's stand together. Musicians, come, let's sing joy to the world. Father, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for the beauty of this season 
and the hope that we have, not only now, but the hope that takes us beyond anything we have at all. We praise you, Lord, because you have made each one of us in your image. And Lord, as we relinquish control of our life and let you have lordship, you make us into the person and the people you want us to be. Lord, do the work today. And please don't stop it until the day we see you coming in the clouds in the air. In Christ's name, amen.